Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Today we sit down to discuss with Lord David Willits. Lord David Willits was a Conservative MP from 1992 to 2015. From 2010 to 2014, he served as the Minister of State for Universities and Science. In that role, he brought in the 9K tuition fees. Currently, he serves as president of the Resolution Foundation, a living standards-focused think tank, where a key crux of his work is on intergenerational fairness, intergenerational mobility. We sit down with him to discuss his time as universities minister, his perspective on intergenerational conflict, and where COVID stands in relation to all this. Lord David Willett, thank you very much for coming to join us today. And well, first off, how are you finding life under lockdown? What have you been keeping busy with recently? Well, uh, I we thought we were empty nesters, my wife and I. But what has happened is our son, who is finishing his doctorate uh, at Oxford, has uh, moved back in uh, with his girlfriend. So we've actually seen more of our uh, son and his friend than we have for many months. And it's been... Uh, very enjoyable personally having that family experience but of course we're also very aware of all the constraints and how difficult it is for for other people um what do you mean keeping busy with recently what work have you had on well i found at resolution uh, the think tank where i'm president we've been doing a lot of work on the the economics of the covid crisis and uh, we've also, for me personally, I remain very interested in science and technology. Uh, I was very involved in the debates about whether or not the government should get involved with OneWeb, this low Earth orbit constellation. That's probably the biggest practical issue I've been involved in, in policy terms over the last few months. With your experience as a minister, you've worked in opposition, and now you chair the Resolution Foundation. How do you find the scope for changing the political debate is different in each of those? And then what have you brought from one into the other as kind of the learning, the development perspective? Well, that's a really good question. And of course, they have different roles. Um, I began my career as an official in the Treasury and then a number 10 and then ran a think tank back in the 1980s. Uh, And the the task of think tanks is to dig uh, more deeply than sometimes a busy minister or indeed opposition spokesman can. And also, I think, to broaden the range of the politically possible. It's not to say the things that are already the conventional wisdom and have already become the policy of a political party. It's to try to broaden the horizon. And uh, so in the 1980s, the Centre for Policy Studies We did a lot of work on privatization, including advocating for the first time privatization of nationalized industries that were then privatized. That was broad during the bounds of the the possible. At Resolution, I've been heavily involved in our work on intergenerational fairness um, and the argument, for example, that if taxes at some point have to rise, it's much fairer if those increases are on taxes on the capital, particularly belonging to affluent older people, rather than on the earnings, often of less well-off younger people. Uh, So on both occasions, those are examples of think tanks broadening the scope of the framework within which politicians operate. Um, For me as a minister, of course, there are uh, enormous opportunities to, to shape things, sometimes by direct, explicit, hard, clear decisions like uh, increasing the 
tuition fees. Other times by convening power and influence and making things and promoting and encouraging things, I would say online education, where I was heavily involved in the creation of FutureLearn. In opposition, it can be very frustrating. On the other hand, you know you're preparing for the possibility of government. And also sometimes, and I had this experience when I was Shadow Work and Pension Secretary uh, in the, uh, under the Blair Brown government, um, you also find that you can work constructively with ministers. So I would say auto-enrolment is a very good example of a cross-party policy. Uh, which I supported in opposition and we implemented in coalition, which, of course, the, which the Labour government had started. So you can also make progress in opposition uh, if you are willing to be very astute on what you oppose and what you support. How do you feel that your experience developed throughout those? So say when you're at the Resolution Foundation now, how do you draw on experience you built as a government minister? Or when in opposition, how do you use your time at number 10? Well, um, I guess one of the things you are aware of as a minister is operational and practical constraints. The number of bright ideas which don't work for the simple reason that someone says the IT system can't do that is legion. And there's never going to be an exciting uh, think tank pamphlet with some bold idea which says, what a pity, we haven't got the database and the IT to make this happen. So there's all that kind of stuff that you wrestle with as a minister. And you're surprised in my career, going back to also being a minister under John Major, the number of decisions shaped by those sorts of constraints, which rarely appear in the public debate. Um, I would say uh, one of the things I, I recognize that we can do is to be honest, is to say the things that for reasons I completely understand, ministers or even opposition spokesmen can't say, and to keep on saying them and to persuade people until they do become sale politicians as well. Can you give me an example of something that a minister or an opposition minister couldn't say, but you and the Resolution Foundation could? I think we can explicit the intergenerational challenge. And look, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm against old people. I'm not a generational warrior. I don't think older people are the enemy. But nevertheless, and they vote. They have enormous electoral power. So any, any uh, politician facing election is not going to wish to upset the part of his constituency or her constituency. But the... I would say that being more explicit on, for example, just stating um, benefits policy has massively favoured the incomes of pensioners over the incomes of working age families. The median pensioner income after housing costs is now higher than the median working age family income. Um, and of course, when you say that, people say, oh, that's averages or those are statistics but it's the aggregate of a large number of individual circumstances just making all very explicit is the kind of thing that politicians will accept in private but find hard to say in public because i mean as i say it's not as an attack on old people but every time you say it you'll have letters in neat copper plate handing on basled and bond note from some old person saying he or she has had a life. And I'm sure they have a tough life. I understand we have an obligation to them. 
but it doesn't affect the overall balance of social, which is which still assumes old equals poor and poor equals old when that's no longer the case. Why is it? Well, first, could you just explain what is the intergenerational perspective? What's the new thing that you think you address in the pinch and in the Resolution Foundation? What what is that perspective? Like the broad context. Well, I would say what I've uh, written about in the pinch, and incidentally, there's a second edition just out as, uh, it, it, with a lot of data, which sadly confirmed the original argument 10 years ago. Uh, the argument was uh, young people were a raw deal, um, and you could measure it in terms of their incomes and earnings, which are uh, young people in the past, you, in terms of their assets, hard to get started on the housing ladder, very difficult to build up anything like the value of the defined benefit pension that older people have. And you can see it in the distributional work of the welfare state. We're drawing actually on work by an LSE professor, Sir John Hills, who showed that the welfare state is heavily redistributive towards baby boomers. So that's the kind of basic proposition, which 10 years ago was quite controversial. But I have to say, I think now is why. Then the extra twist to the argument, where I kind of engage with the deeper economic demography of all this, is that the conventional view from Malthus to Easterlin has been, if you were asked, would you like to be a big cohort or a small cohort, you would rationally choose to be a small cohort. You know, you'd choose to go through life business class, not economy class, fewer competitors of your age in the jobs market, fewer people trying to buy a house alongside you. But the argument in the pinch is that in modern welfare states, it's worked out the other way. Being a big cohort has worked to the advantage of the boomers. And because partly if there's a lot of you, you shape the market around your consumer preferences. If you all vote, you can shape public policy around you. So the underlying argument is the big boomer generation have ended up because they are so big getting things to their advantage. So to apply that lens practically, how do you think this intergenerational focus explains the success of Thatcherism? And then what would you say the intergenerational pressures that Boris Johnson should be aware of? Well, there's another strand of argument, because what I also show is that, of course, he feels if, if you think big generation working its way through the life cycle. A great image is like a python swallowing a pig. It's working its way through. So you track the the boomer generation born between 1945 and 1965, roughly, through the system. And you find that Thatcherism thrives and brings down, for example, public expenditure and has very favorable fiscal environment. When there's lots of people of working age, especially relatively young workers, with not many expensive pensioners uh, ahead of them and fewer kids behind them. So you had a, you had a very economically favorable distrib- age distribution of the population. And particularly, as these younger people were surging jobs market, all they had, although they had the real pain of unemployment in the early 80s, the, in reality, if you are restructuring your economy, if you're moving out of um, coal mining, 
into service industries. Having a surge of new entrants into the jobs bit helps facilitate kind of economic transition. So my argument is that the demographic backdrop was ripe for Thatcher, an environment where there were relatively low public spending pressures and where structural change in the economy was relatively easy to deliver. So it's interesting because under Thatcher, it was the case that if you wanted to guess which party someone would vote for, you just ask them what social class they are. Now, less the case. Rather, if you want to know what party, some, uh, party someone votes for, you just ask what age they are. And anecdotally, this is very true of all my friends and very true of all my parents' friends. Um, why, why is it that you think that shift has taken place? That you think it's now the case that more, more young people are lefties, more, right, um, more older people are Tories? Well, by the way, when you say anecdotally is an injustice. To your, your proposition is not just anecdote. And at Resolution Foundation, you'll find on our website absolutely rigorous evidence that historically your system rested on a class divide and increasingly it rests on an age divide. Um, when you say young people are lefty and all that, my, my view is young people are frustrated in achieving, actually, if I may say so, as I, and I, you know, I'm side of young people, really quite conventional aspirations. Um, young people, by and large, do not want Marxist revolution. Uh, they accept a large part of the Thatcher-Blair economic settlement. What they want is a decent prospect of a wealthy job, um, owning their own flat or property, being able to save for a pension. So part of what I say to my conservative friends is, look, this is... So these aspirations are exactly the kind of aspirations that any conservative understands. Their problem is they're frustrated and unhappy because they're so hard to fulfill in today's Britain. That's the problem. Um, so I, I think the, it's important to, when you dig into this to be absolutely clear, because sometimes people, especially guilty baby boomers, say to me, ah, oh, young people's aspirations have changed. They don't care about vulgar things like owning stuff in the way that we boomers do. So it's all right that they don't own much stuff. They don't really want to. Now, it is true if you look at some specifics, for example, car ownership. Car ownership clearly is highly uh, relinked, uh, linked to which cohort you're in. I fully understand there are lots of young people, especially in a great city like London, who, for whom owning a car looks completely irrelevant and uh, also uh, uh, environmentally damaging. However, when it comes to other aspirations, getting a place at university, getting a well-paid job, owning your own property, flat or house, there the evidence is young people's aspirations are still as strong as ever. The problem is they're not being fulfilled. So part of the success of Thatcher was that she could reach outside of the Tories' traditional demographic to this aspiring class. So two questions for you then. What should Boris Johnson be doing to reach outside of the or like baby boomer group to younger, more aspirational voters? And what should Keir Starmer be doing to reach from out of the um, millennials group more towards baby boomers? How do you replicate that success of being able to get a different pool of people supporting you? Well, I think the clue from, uh, to what I think the, the prime minister should, the, sorry, the, the clue to uh, what I think the prime minister should do in the previous answer, which is make it e help young people fulfill these aspirations. That's why our intergenerational commission at Resolution uh, proposed, for example, a capital grant, you know, 10,000 pounds for everyone when they come about the age of 30. 
um, which they can use to help with the deposit for their first property or put down towards their pension scheme or even use to pay for education and training. And given the surge in spending that's now underway, that's something that where the case is even more relevant. Uh, obviously, also just get more houses and flats built. So say you understand the aspiration to make it uh, easier for them to fulfill them. Um, I think obviously it's less, it's less easy for me to um, advise Keir Starmer, but I, I would say that often for older people, there's a set of cultural issues and they were worried that, especially under Jeremy Corbyn, the previous Labour leader, um, there just wasn't a kind of patriotic party. And I think Keir Starmer has, has registered that you, um, you don't want to fight a, a, a kind of cultural war against things like patriotism, which is what it appeared parts of the Labour Party were doing. So I think for there, there's a lot of, there's a big cultural element. It's interesting. Where do you think COVID-19 changes this debate? How do you think it lies? Because COVID-19, by definition, um, affects general, by definition, it's a virus. COVID-19 affects generations differently. So how do you feel it? How do you square the circle here? Well, indeed, it does. And of course, although older people are most vulnerable, uh, they, again, we've shown at Resolution Foundation, the biggest economic hit is being borne by younger people uh, for various reasons, including that often their first jobs are in the very sectors worst affected, the service industry jobs in retailing and hospitality, for example, where incidentally, I think the Chancellor's uh, budget, recent budget measures were really well judged there. Um, but I think we, we need to do more to help those, those young people with very high risks of unemployment. Obviously, one is to try to get them into some kind of work, uh, labor market incentives of the sort that we are now seeing from the treasury. The other thing is to accept that many more of them are just gonna to want to stay in education. The opportunity cost of staying in education is much lower because there's, there's sadly, there are fewer job opportunities out there, out there. So now is the time to be more flexible. It needn't be just a conventional three years honours degree, but make it easier for people to get a bit more education and training at an FE college or a university, be it a, a, a qualification level three, an A-level, be it HNCs and HNDs and BTECs, or some credits from a university course without necessarily doing the full course. Something that enables them, even if it's just for six months or 12 months, to get some extra qualification and perhaps also to compensate for, let's face it, quite possibly a very disrupted education over the past six months. So reading your book, available in all good booksellers, um, it was a perspective that I'd never seen before and one that I really do think unlocked the debate. But why is it you think that lens is new? Why is this the, the first, well, first edition was 10 years ago, but why is it you think now is the first time you're getting this perspective? Why is it in an economics, you know, in a university economics class, demography is not one of the key tools that's used to analyze these debates? Yeah, it's very interesting because I, I find demography one of the most useful and powerful long-term structural factors in it. Uh, and I think it's, uh, you're right, I think it's been undervalued um, and its significance insufficiently appreciated. Um, I, I, would, I would say it's just because this, this shift in circumstances 
has been particularly dramatic in the period since the financial crash. Now, the trends precede the crash. The trends were also already emerging in the good years um, when uh, Western economies were performing well. I mean, home ownership uh, peaked amongst young people in the late 1980s. Uh, but nevertheless, there was the general uh, you know, decent performance of, of living standards hid the phenomenon. The crash has made it much more clear and explicit in the last 10 years. Um, and then you add to that this, this other phenomenon, which I guess originally goes back to Piketty, though um, I, I've done more work on it than Resolution has in uh, for the pinch. I think it's a really important change that a, in Britain, the wealth, the total assets as property, which used to run at about three times GDP, in the past 25, 30 years has increased to seven times GDP. Um, and a society where wealth is seven times GDP, not three times GDP, it, it changes its character profoundly because it means that young people earning are going to find it harder to use their earnings to acquire assets, which are much more expensive by contrast. However, for the older generation who have ridden this boom in asset prices, they find themselves with much greater wealth than they ever expected. Now, uh, and again, look, I'm a boomer myself, and I know how the argument goes. Boom, you, you wouldn't believe the number of events I go to, and they say, oh, it's not because of macroeconomics, it's because I built the conservatory on the house. That's why it's gone up in value. No, it's also because of a series of policies from tight planning rules through to QE, which have led to this surge in the value of asset. So the gap between the older people sitting on this massive amount of wealth and the younger people whose earnings have not been increasing and who nevertheless the value of their assets has gone up, finding the shift from earnings to acquiring assets harder and harder, and incidentally making therefore inheritance more important. This is a really important set of social changes and economic changes, which you can only really understand through a generational perspective. So to shift this and to discuss more of a discussion of the art of policymaking, one thing we've asked everyone in this series is their opinion on the following quote. So 2006, Greg Mankiw, Harvard professor and was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, said, the sad truth is that macroeconomic research for the past three decades has had only a minor impact on the practical analysis of fiscal and monetary policy. How true is that of the UK experience in your perspective? And then how true is that kind of in number 10, in opposition, in Resolution Foundation? Well, look, I was a, a junior treasury official in 79, 80, 81, that very deep recession. Um, and, uh, and that was a time, incidentally, when the monetarist revolution was coming home. I mean, it's, um, the time period is quite important. And I, I would say the monetarist revolution, going back to uh, Milton Friedman and his uh, famous American Economic Association lecture in the late 60s, was that about 68, wasn't it? I mean, within 10 years, that was massively shifting the way people thought of economic policy. Um, and I think since then, there have been further changes. I mean, there's been a recognition of the difficulty of monetary rules, a shift towards the recognition of the importance of institutional independence and credibility. I would say the the, the speed of the response to the 2008 crash and now this unique set of problems with the virus 
shows that there is uh, an understanding of the power of government and the significance of of um, easing policy to offset effects. Now, you could argue that's a rediscovery of some Keynesian insights. You could equally say it's a, a shift in thinking born from looking at the evidence from the early 1980s. Um, and I think, but, but I think in a way we're looking in the wrong place. Where I do believe the evidence really matters and where economics has got much more uh, and, and got advanced is, I would say, application of, of game theory to um, economics, um, looking at the distribution effects of globalization and a recognition why there's a group of pretty angry people in Britain and America for whom the benefits of, who haven't been haven't felt the benefits of globalization and what a trade policy should look like. Um, I would say there's quite a lot at the micro level, even if the macro debate just seems to go through long cycles. So often in your analysis, you draw reference to history. For example, in discussions of the university system, very often you'll say, look, Oxford and Cambridge had this monopoly on universities. Um, they didn't let anyone else join. You know, if you were a student at Oxford or Cambridge, you couldn't then lecture in another UK university. Oxford and Cambridge set up this artificial duopoly, preventing others from joining the system. And then we can use that to understand the university sector in the UK as it is today compared to Spain, say. Why is that useful? Yeah. Why, why draw in history when having these discussions? Well, it, it is true. And again, and thank you for referring to my, my uh, other book, uh, University Education, where you're right, it does begin with history. I mean, look, let me be self-indulgent. Partly, I just think history is interesting. And I do find personally the historical framework of value. Um, and I'll give you an example, which isn't actually from the world of universities. It's from when I was a minister in the cabinet office under John Major. And uh, so you sit in these rather grand traditional rooms in Whitehall. Um, and I can remember a bill being passed after there'd been some appalling tragedy of some school children or some teenagers canoeing trip. About four of them drowned and it became clear that they hadn't been properly supervised and the canoes weren't safe. And anyway, there was a big inquiry which came up with the proposals for regulating um, uh, those type of outs uh, outside activities, particularly, but not only in schools. So we then sat around in the cabinet office working out how to implement this requirement. And somebody said, uh, one argument was, well, we should ask local authorities to do it. Then other people say, well, they don't really know about this. And anyway, they know they also run schools. So would they be, can they be the regulators as well? Um, is there some existing regulatory body that which we should add this function? Um, should we create a new regulatory body? Um, can we use really tough private insurance regulations requirements to get behavior to change? And I realized that this conversation, that meeting had been happening in that room for about 150 years. I was actually observing the growth of the British state. And incrementally, year in, year out, this type of discussion had been happening in that very same set of ministerial meeting rooms. So you do, you do find it, um, and of course the trade-offs shift and the technological and practical constraints, but some of the underlying issues are the same. Now, applying that to universities, I think it's very relevant because one of the problems that I describe in the book is we do have in Britain 
one picture of what it is to be a good university. And that dominant picture is uh, research intensive, highly selective, both academically and often, unfortunately, socially, um, uh, international prestige. The power of the Oxbridge model on what we think a good university looks like. I'm trying to argue there are other types, of, other ways of being a, a good university, uh, an incredibly powerful civic university with roots in your local community, a university that focuses on high quality education, but doesn't necessarily do much research, a university with strong links to local employers and businesses. Um, and other countries that had a wider range of types of institutions for longer have found it easier to accept there's more than one model. And England in particular, we for 600 years in Oxford and Cambridge. And there's no other Western country that had kind of two very early creations and then stopped creating them. This is a very unusual history. So I show in the book, you know, by, by the time of Napoleon, uh, most other European countries have got 20, 25 universities. Every major, every major European city would have had one. Uh, London still didn't have a university. Uh, and that is very, very odd. And we don't realise quite how odd it is. As a minister, how do you use history to educate policy design? And obviously, it's not as simple to say, well, you know, things repeat, repeat themselves. So do you just have one guy in the back of a room with a textbook looking for parallels? How do you use it? <laughs> well, I think, to be honest, one of the problems in Whitehall is... Because people move around so much um, and move around, and not even necessarily within the same area within the department, they, yeah, they will, they'll move radically between different areas of policy. Institutional memory is pretty weak. And so knowledge, and, and one thing I, I'm, I, I do find myself doing it, I'm, and I'm... I'm happy to do and have these conversations in private. I, I have ministers who phone me up kind of just basically saying, so why have we got this? Why, why, why did, and they say it courteously or sometimes with exasperation. So why exactly was this decision taken? And, um, uh, and you can explain. I mean, I'm not saying that we got everything right before, but people aren't always aware of the constraints or what the con considerations are. Um, the, uh, and the, and there's some sense of how, I mean, your view on the trade-offs can shift, but some of the underlying trade-offs don't change that much. Uh, and wherever the trade-off sort of hits, wherever it lands, you'd be surprised how rapidly um, people want a different trade-off. At least they think they want a different trade-off. Um, so all that is is very is very helpful. And and but sadly, I think it's I think it's more important important for people to understand why we've got where we are because otherwise they will they will uh destroy things when they didn't fully understand the value of why we've got them or they will uh repeat the same mistake which would be um another great tragedy so shifting then to a discussion more fully of your time as university's minister what are you proud of what did you regret as your time there how did it go well, I think that what I'm proud of is I think we've ended up with a system of university financing that means that universities have been uh, properly resourced to fund a high quality education for undergraduates and in a way that is fair and progressive, which is well-paid graduates pay back, as you know, at the rate of 9%. 
above a very high repayment threshold. And, and if you're not in a, West, uh, in a well-paid job, you don't pay back. So that's, that seems to me fair. And given all the constraints on public expenditure, universities were doing badly at getting public expenditure. But fortunately, as their graduates are well paid by and large, you can reasonably expect them to cover the costs. So that's, that, I think, is a big prize. The, uh, I think my disappointment is, and I, I, certainly my regret, is the decline in adult education which was not planned. I mean, this, uh, we thought we were, by actually extending loans to mature students, we would support uh, older learners. Uh, the truth is that whereas for a young person starting university, the fork in the road is so clear, they don't, and they don't pay up front. So for many young people, it's absolutely right to want to go to university. And of course, they're not, they're not put, up by, put off by a 9% tax rate sometime in the future if they've got a well-paid job. Um, but for mature students, the trade-offs are trickier and the repayments look more pressing and urgent and you've got, you've got greater um, immediate spending pressure. So I think that's my biggest regret, yeah. So given the change in the national accounting treatment of student loans by the ONS and the removal of beneficial debt consequences of loans, knowing what we know now, how do you think you would have, or would you have approached the fee reforms differently? I don't think it. I don't think it makes that much difference. By the way, just to correct you, when you say the debt, uh, um, obviously the the cost of the loans uh, that we provided always counted in the national debt, in public debt. It was always in those figures. There was this um, uh, is, esoteric issue in public financing, the RAB, the so-called RAB charge, which was, of course, quite correctly the estimate, which is a forecast and an imperfect forecast of what proportion of the loans will be repaid. Um, and uh, writing some of the loans off uh, makes sense. You, you, people are in very low paid jobs or have some personal misfortune, which means they can't pay back their loan. We shouldn't. It's how we as taxpayers still contribute to the cost of higher education. And so we should. Um, now, how exactly you show that in the accounts um, uh, is, is to be honest, doesn't particularly affect the debate because you have a genuine public policy question. What is the right kind of rate at which we should expect these loans to be written off? And it is a forecast, so it's not quite like conventional public expenditure. Um, what I regret there, however, is I think that the repayment threshold is too high. I think there's too many, too high proportion of the loans are being written off. Um, my model would be that the typical graduate would be expected in the course of his or her working life to pay back the costs of their higher education. That seems to me to be the starting point. You then add, so that means if you have unusual disadvantages or interrupted earnings or whatever, at that point we step in. So, uh, and what happened was that Theresa May's government increased the threshold very high, which meant that the forecast write-offs became very high which meant at that point that people said, hang on, this is, this is becoming absurd and increased pressures to handle their accounting treatment in a different way. But I, but I don't think it affects the underlying policy. It's a graduate repayment system, quite rightly, but the exact calibration, uh, including around the threshold, is, is going to be an endless subject for public, public policy discussion. So two questions. First, what do you see the main challenges facing universities? And then second, now COVID-19 exists, what do you see as the main challenges facing universities? 
Well, I think I think for universities, and I've been disappointed by this, but uh, as I said at the beginning of my book, I love universities. I think universities are fantastic institutions. I think they are fundamental to to the advance of Western civilization, and also to the uh, and also to economic advance. Uh, and they are one of the West's great gifts to the world. Were before the Western universities, there were really powerful um, universities in the Islamic world, which were themselves centers of understanding. Um, and now, of course, they're rising in the East. But but uh, their post-war history has been particularly, uh, until recently, focused on the West. So I think they're great institutions. And for most young people, they are transformational in a good sense. But that uh, there's an awful lot of kind of um, they've had a bit of a kick in the last few years, sometimes to, uh, uh, justified. Um, some co- courses and the quality of the teaching experience is still not as good as it should be. And universities need had such a powerful incentive arrangement to focus on research that they didn't always pay enough attention to the quality of the experience of the undergraduate. And actually, one of the reasons for, for the fee changes was to get them to think of undergraduates as much more significant players uh, than they'd become. So I think, but I think the lack of that loss of uh, public support um, is, a, is disappointing. Still the case, lots of young people want to go and it'll carry on rising. But uh, yeah, I think that's a problem for them. Where the virus kicks in is... Um, and of course, it's been massively disruptive to the universities and institutions. But I have to say, it has led to more rapid innovation, digital innovation, getting courses online in the last six months than in the previous 20 years. And to be honest, this is the future. Of course, um, a young adult, an 18-year-old, may well, well want, I completely understand why, to go away from home and have that residential uh, university experience. Um, but there's much more, even in those circumstances, there's much more that can be efficiently done with high quality online education. And I think that is very exciting. Um, and, uh, I think advances there can go a lot further. It is interesting just that shift online. Um, one of my flatmates who, um, studies somewhere, um, for years now, they've, the lecturers at his course have refused to record record anything because you know it needs to be in person it's not the same experience if it's not in person but of course now it can't be in person and suddenly there's department emails going around of but don't worry guys it's going to be the same as it's always been which does make you wonder why there was that institutional <laughs> reticence in the first place but yeah as you say yeah. it's because it pushes that and then what do you think about no go on go on uh, one other point on this uh, when you say the emails from the department saying, don't worry, it's all going to be the same. When the digital revolution reaches each any sector, it goes through two stages. The first stage is people try to reproduce the old experience digitally. So what you get is a lecture and a seminar delivered by a Zoom or Teams or whatever, or recorded and available on video. The next stage, which I think is the really exciting one, when people realize they can use digital technologies to transform pedagogy. I think it will change. And if it's done properly, it'll change for the better. Um, to give one example, the data that you can collect about how an individual is learning and progressing are massive if everything is online. Now, sadly, the education debate about use of data and privacy of data is way behind the health debate. But nevertheless, there is there the potential. There, um, there are, you suddenly get, if you track someone through school, college, and university, 
millions of data points for every individual. This transforms educational possibilities. So, and I think that we're just getting into that second stage and that's when it really gets significant. What do you think are the best measures that can be introduced to meet the challenges that COVID-19 gives universities? And what do you think of kind of the most recent big one of temporary student controls? Do you think they should become permanent? Do you think they should exist at all? Well, I think for the, obviously for the virus, you, you want to stay in touch with your students um, online, um, uh, improve that and invest in that rapidly. Uh, I think especially here, uh, you're at the LSE, we're talking about a London university. Uh, for many students, including international students, the London experience will still matter. But for the LSE, it seems to me clear, the LSE want, would wish to keep in touch, an overseas student li currently living in Shanghai, who wishes to come and study at the LSE, the challenge for the next few months is to keep them and build up a stronger sense of engagement, loyalty, participation in the LSE experience online, and then offer them you know, a carefully designed three months, six months in London, let's hope some point next year, things get a bit more, get easier. Um, so innovation in the offer to make, to keep students engaged. Um, you ask about number controls and look, there's a, they're a temporary expedient this year. I don't much like them. And I think there's a really important point of principle in the longer run, which is uh, I don't believe in uh, uh, the, someone in Whitehall deciding how many students should be admitted to each British university. Um, I believe in open recruitment. If there are individuals that, that have got the academic aptitude to benefit from going to a university and the university has got the capacity to take them on, they should be able to do so without some Whitehall edict getting in the way. Three questions to wrap up. First, what do you think some interesting work being done right now? And what, what type of developing fields, cool stuff, do you think undergrads should be aware of? Well, what I got interested in um, a while back, and actually one of my main um, attempts to organize my thinking about it was a lecture at the LSE, the Oakshot lecture. Uh, I, uh, I think, no, and it's been going on for a while now, but the, the, the intersection of kind of evolutionary biology, um, game theory, and neuroscience to enrich our understanding of human behavior, uh, and I think that is very relevant for economics and the behavioral uh, assumptions underpinning economics. I think I, th I continue to believe that that's a, a very fertile area. Um, and it's, 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 I think it's part of the basis on which you now have to do economics. Look, my tutor, when um, I was studying economics, look, 40 years ago now, uh, who sadly died quite young, Michael Backrack, then was saying, he, he was one of the people who then was interested in the game theoretic underpinnings of economics. But I still think it remains a rich research program. What are some books that you think every undergrad economics student should read, specifically those who can't really go outside and play with their friends? <laughs> well, of course, the, the people doing economics now have uh, numerical, analytical, mathematical, skills uh, way beyond uh, in my time and look I'm I, I did PPE so it was it was never a full-blown economics course um, so I think the technical economics is very strong my worry is the impoverishment that comes from not seeing it in a wider context of political economy 
and going back to our earlier discussion, other trends such as demographics. So I think of the books that have influenced me that have put economics in a wider perspective. The, the economic revolution, the industrial revolution began here in Britain. The reflection as to why the industrial revolution happened here is still an incredibly good way of getting at a first understanding of, of, um, uh, of political economy. So you, you have got to read Adam Smith. You've got to read something like, um, in my day, it was David Landers, Wealth and Poverty of Nations, reflecting on that extraordinary historical experience. Um, I would be I would be interested in I think I have a great interest in the Austrian school, um, which again is a useful corrective to the wilder optim op, some of the sort of focus on math. So I would I would read Hayek, um, I think Schumpeter on innovation, uh, and the um, the cycles of of um, kind of almost irrational exuberance and creative destruction. So Capitalism, social demo Socialism, Democracy is a great book. Um, and for you at the LSE, with your strengths in, in social policy, also um, uh, for you know, understanding that. So there's the, the Nick, Nick Timmins has probably written the best history of the post-war welfare state. And of course, one of the great directors of uh, the LSE was William Beveridge. So Josie Harris's biography of beverage. So if you've got some something a bit on the history of political economy, Austrian school economics, uh, something about social policy, just just reading around like that. And then finally, as ever, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is young people. I mean, as I said, that's why I feel bad that uh, young people are, uh, I think, having a raw deal. But young people are incredibly resilient. And compared to my generation, I think uh, you work harder. I think you're more serious minded. I think more aware of the environmental Im impact of what you do. Um, you know, to deliver anything like a slowdown in global warming, the amount of carbon dioxide you guys emit uh, in your lifetimes, I show in the pinch, has got to be about one eighth of the carbon dioxide emitted by baby boomers during our lives. Um, so I think you, yeah, I, th I think, uh, and that's one of the many reasons why I love universities. Um, uh, they are, I think they are as, as dynamic and exciting places as ever. Lord David Willits, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next time.